Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Battles extract a horrible price on combatants and on the societies that support them. This has always been true, but it is only in the modern world that belligerent states and organizations have been either willing or able to take care of the wounded in any systematic way. Even today, when advances in medicine and transportation technology have made it much more possible for warriors to survive even grievous wounds and return to the battlefield, not all states have made the investments necessary to take full advantage. There are costs to such a short-sighted approach to military medicine, costs in both morale and effectiveness. Today in A Better Peace, we are delighted to have with us as a guest, one of the leading scholars of military medicine and its impact on war fighting, Dr. Tanisha Fazal, to help us understand those costs and their implications. Tanisha Fazal is Professor of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. Her scholarship focuses on sovereignty, international law, and armed conflict. She's the author of two award-winning books and numerous articles in academic and policy journals, and for the last two years, she has been an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. She also spoke here at the U.S. Army War College back in the fall of 2022 as part of our Civil Military Relations Center, and we are delighted to have her with us today on A Better Peace. Greetings, Dr. Fazal. Hi, Ron. So nice to be with you today. It's great to have you here, too. So, uh, Tanisha, what led you to your uh, to your current projects and to this particular topic of military medicine? How does it fit in your overall scholarly agenda? Well, I think there are kind of two answers to that question. The um, the the more scholarly answer is that I tend to be interested in questions about macro historical change. Uh, And so my first book was on why it is that we no longer see states disappearing from the map of the world. My second book was on international humanitarian law and how changes in international humanitarian law altered the incentives of belligerents in both interstate and civil wars to comply with um, that body of international law or LOAC uh, is a term that some of your readers might be more familiar with. The less scholarly answer is that I tend to come to my projects because I'm annoyed by something (laughs) or someone. Uh, And that was definitely the case here because military medicine is not a usual topic for political scientists. Uh, It's not a usual topic for most people unless you are in military medicine yourself, you're a practitioner. There are, of course, also some really excellent military medical historians. Um, But what happened, uh, what what brought me to this topic specifically was that I was um, writing uh, a series of articles out of my last book on international humanitarian law or LOAC. And 
I had this one paper on why it was that we no longer see peace treaties in interstate wars. And one of the reviewers, one of the peer reviewers, reviewer two, because it's always reviewer two, of course. Um, was pushing back at me and really wanted me to engage with what was at the time a relatively new book. And that was Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature on the violence in um, the decline of violence is or something along those lines is the the subtitle mm. of those book that book and i had meant to read pinker's book it was on my shelf but it's 800 pages and so i was going to read it one day <laughs> and then um <laughs> you know one day became much more immediate uh and so i pulled down this doorstep of a book and read it cover to cover and a lot of the book especially at the start is about trends in interpersonal violence, um, things like how we treat each other, uh, how we treat our pets, disciplining children. But then the back end of the book is about rates of war. And so now we're in my wheelhouse as an international security scholar. And I was really struck by the fact that the empirical basis for Pinker's claim that war was on de the decline was a decline in battle deaths. But of course, over the same time period, there have been these dramatic improvements in medical care and conflict zone that mean that effectively what we're doing is moving casualties from the fatal to the non-fatal column. So that sparked a very long response memo for that paper responding to that particular reviewer. And then also sparked this new research agenda where you know the first step was to push back against Pinker. But um, out of that paper where I was pushing back against Pinker, I, you know, two things really stuck with me after writing that paper. One was that there was a potential relationship between military medicine and military effectiveness. And the other was that in the US case in particular, medicine had gotten really, really good, but there are associated long-term downstream costs of these improvements in medical care that we hadn't really been thinking about. Sure. Well, this is good because there's are several threads there I'd like to pull on, although I do want to start by confirming to you that I think people do underappreciate the importance of spite and annoyance in the formation of academic projects. I think we, we might have to have you back for when we have a longer discussion on that topic. Uh, but the um, but the idea that, yeah, that... that uh, Medicine gets better, so fewer people die, which is great. But it doesn't mean that war is any less violent or awful. Um, when you consider that people could die from a, a scratch once upon a time, and now people can survive much more grievous wounds, uh, that doesn't mean that war is any any nicer. But then I, that that gets to the, the the question I want to ask you, and that is, you know, in your in your research since since you moved into this project and then you've made presentations, is um, how well do you think? that scholars or practitioners have understood the connection between, as you put it in your work, military medicine, effectiveness, and morale as a, as a triangle. Um, is this, uh, how, how, how well do we understand those relationships and how do we measure those relationships? Those are big questions. Um, I apologize I think that in advance. That's okay. I like big questions. I would say that Military medical practitioners and historians of military medicine, they believe firmly that there is a connection between and among military medicine, military effectiveness, and military morale. But 
A, they have a vested interest in making that argument, right? Because we all think that the thing that we're doing is the most important thing. Um, and B, they haven't really ever investigated these claims systematically. So mm-hmm. they'll look at a particular case and come to that conclusion or look at what they're doing in a particular theater of war and come to that conclusion. But nobody really looked at this globally or historically. Um And at the same time, scholars of military effectiveness, where there's, of course, an enormous literature out there on military effectiveness, have basically ignored a possible role for military medicine, which is really interesting, I think, especially when you consider the fact that, especially in um, quantitative analyses of military effectiveness, one of the outcome variables, one of the measures of military effectiveness is oftentimes some version of fatalities. And you would certainly expect medicine to play a role there. So, you know, no, to answer your question, this isn't really something, this is an assumption that a lot mm-hmm. of people had made or a factor that a lot of other people had completely ignored and no one had really ever looked at this systematically. Now, it's not surprising because this is a hard, it's hard to do this. I mean, it's been a lot of work. We had to collect a lot of original data. We've been... I mean, I could tell you a sob story about what I did last summer in terms of trying to recruit people into some of the survey work underlying this research. Um, but I think that that's part of why people hadn't really done it before, because it's it's a pretty significant task. I mean, it's one of the, one of the challenges of social science, right? Is often one ha- one is trying to it, one is doing a great deal of work to try to find out whether something that people already believe is true or not. Uh, I, I, and that's, and that, that's why, and then when you really do it well, everybody says, well, of course, right. We knew that already. Right. But it's like, well, no, you didn't know it until, until I showed you, um, you might've thought it, but you didn't know it. Cause like, I could tell you, right. If I'm a warfighter and I feel like my service, the, that if I'm injured, there's going to be somebody who's going to find me, help me, get me to a hospital and keep me alive. I'm going to fight differently than if I feel like I'm completely on my own. I might just stay right here behind this rock, thank you very much, rather than, than take any risks. But um, what kinds of data did you use to analyze this? I mean, outside of the fatalities versus non-fatalities, what kinds of things did you ask in the surveys or, or look for in the, in the documents that you were able to track down? So the project has a few different parts to it. One part is looking at the relationship between military medicine on the one hand and military effectiveness on the other over all wars, all interstate Mm. wars globally since 1900. And so for that part of the project, we had to collect data on each of these wars. So we had, if you'll forgive the pun, a small army of research assistants, um, and we would assign them each a war or a set of wars, and they had to answer a series of questions about um, what the wounded to killed ratio was for each side, whether the medical personnel for each side had military rank, so in other words, whether they're in the line of command, um, which side they thought had the medical advantage in the war. And they produced these very detailed reports where we could then pull out this data into a spreadsheet and conduct a statistical analysis to see what whether whether there is a relationship between military medicine and, and uh, military effectiveness, and if so, what that relationship looked like. And what we found is that there's actually a pretty significant and positive relationship. M- medicine really does seem to improve effectiveness. Um, 
but we all, you know, one of the ways, there are a few different ways that medicine could improve effectiveness. You know, one is at a very high level. If you have better medicine, then you're going to just be able to bring more people to the fight. So it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another mechanism has to do with units and the stability of units, that if you have better medicine, you're going to have more stable units. You don't have to have people leave to be in the hospital for a long time and have to integrate new people into the unit. And we know that there's a very strong relationship between unit cohesion on the one hand and military effectiveness on the other. And the third mechanism is the one that you mentioned before, and that's morale. So as you said, if you know that you or your buddy is going to be taken care of, if ill or injured, then you're more likely to have greater morale and you're going to fight differently. And that was the hardest in some ways mechanism to get at because you need to you can't answer that question without asking people what they think right um and it turns out surprise surprise that it's really hard to conduct surveys on u.s active duty military personnel if you're not in the military yourself and i'm not in the military um this research is funded by dod but uh you know it was amazing how much time we spent, especially last summer, trying to figure out the best way to recruit people into the survey. You know, we would open one door and sort of feel like we got a foot in and then realize, oh, well, if we go this route, then I need to be working on a secure DoD computer and um, I can't actually use the software that I need to that will support the survey design that I want. And then, you know, so we ended up uh, actually recruiting people via social media, um, oh, which has been, yeah, it, it's interesting in a lot of different ways. <laughs> yeah. that, that could, that, that, that's a lot that you, you have to, you have to gather a lot of chaff to find any wheat, I imagine, if you're talking about uh, yeah, social media. Yeah, so we right? have, yeah. you know, we, we definitely have some questions in there to make sure that the responses are legit or as, mm -hmm. as legitimate as possible. Sure. Um, it wasn't our first choice to do it this way, but we actually, it is, it does, we think it's working. Mm -hmm. um, and it's definitely showing a relationship between uh, belief that you're going to have better medical treatment and higher levels of morale. What's interesting is that you would think, or at least I thought at the start of that, the, that the hard thing was going to be to measure morale, but it turns out that there are, survey instruments out there already that are validated really? to measure morale. So that was an easy thing, an easy problem to solve. The hardest problem has been getting people to respond to the survey. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that, that, that is a, that is a universal lament I'm afraid of social science, right? I'm the one, I, and I, I know this as a course director at the war college, trying to get students to complete the end of course survey can be more difficult than one, uh, than one imagines it's going to be. But I have a, I have a hard question that I don't know if you can answer, but I want to ask and we can decide what to do with it. When you say that there's a connection with uh, uh, military medicine and effectiveness, um, is the way that we measure that by the fact, uh, by deciding sort of whether the side that won had better medicine than the side that lost a particular engagement or a particular war? And is there a correlation? So there is a correlation between better medicine and war outcomes, mm -hmm. but a lot of times the side that has better medicine isn't the side that wins. I mean, I think like a lot of things mm. that contribute to military effectiveness, military medicine is going to 
be most important when the sides are evenly matched. Um, but even when they're not, you can definitely see the side, let's say that side A has better military medicine, but is overmatched in almost every on almost every other dimension by side B. So think mm -hmm. about the winter war, right, between Finland and Russia, for example. The Finns had much better military medicine. In particular, they were much better positioned to fight in the cold. Mm -hmm. uh, and but you know they weren't going to win this war, um, but but they were able to make the war last longer and make the Russians take many more losses as a result of the the, the advantage that they held in military medicine. Right. Well, I, and I was thinking the the uh, let's say a, a strange opposite reaction is that in say Vietnam and in Afghanistan. Right. I think by any measure, the United States had better military medicine, but that didn't lead to victory in either of those places. Yeah, I think that's right. So it doesn't, it's not deterministic. It doesn't mm -hmm. always, it's not a one-to-one -one, um, in and out, uh, but it does, especially in eat more even cases where, you know, when, when you're fighting a counterinsurgency, it's, there are so many other uh, right. odds stacked against you, I think. Uh, but, you know, notwithstanding that you do, you do definitely see these, you see effects of improvements or advantages in military medicine during the war, even if those don't translate to the outcome of the war. Right. I could see that. Well, and, and we had we had talked in preparation for this episode uh, about the question of military medicine in the war that's going on right now in Ukraine. And yep. and what uh, what is your research or what you've been able to uncover? What does it say about the role of military medicine in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Well, I think in this war, especially at the start of the war, I would definitely give the Ukrainians the medical advantage. Um, mm -hmm. One of the major developments of U.S. military medicine in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq was the creation of the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Program, mm -hmm. um, which is one way to think about it as a set of guidelines for tactical combat casualty care. <laughs> and, um, you know, the Ukrainians are trained on TCCC. Uh, the Russians have some training on it, but the Ukrainian training is much more updated. The guidelines have been translated into Ukrainian, uh, and they've been receiving medical aid from the West. And so they, um, for example, have more modern first aid kits. They've been, there was a controversy that I have to admit, I don't understand all the contours of it, but, uh, in the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the another major advance was the commitment to use whole blood in a pre-hospital mm. setting for transfusion, which was something that had been used in World War II, but actually stopped being used at some point in the interim. We can talk a little bit about that if you want, but um, this was something that the Ukrainian military didn't want to do at first when the war started. And apparently they were ultimately persuaded that this was the right thing to do. So this is again, you know, the Ukrainians being trained on and receiving resources from the West on medicine. And on the other hand, the Russians uh, seem to have very bad military medicine. There's not really something where they're 
spending a lot of resources or time. So, um, you know, we were chatting just before we started and I was saying that, you know, you never really know when you see a video on Twitter or something like that, if it's legit, right? Um, but from what I can tell from people who I trust to, who read Russian and speak Russian, and they've been forwarding me some of, some of these materials, um, it really does seem like the Russians are using very outdated tourniquets. They're using World War II era tourniquets. They don't seem to be spending a lot of money on supplies, so they don't have combat dressings or things like that. And you know, there's been a lot of reporting about low morale amongst Russian troops. And I've seen numerous quotes that suggest that the fact that they know that they're not going to be taken care of if they're injured is contributing to that. It's... This may set. This may be the kind of facile observation that somebody who is not a specialist in the field will make. So I'm going to go ahead and make it on behalf of everybody else, and that is there seems to be a connection, or one could imagine a connection, uh, because people talk about how the Russians uh, uh, well, that there's a connection between medicine, logistics, transportation, so the the non-combat elements of organizing a conflict, and if a state or a society is not interested in any one part of those things they probably neglect all of them. Um, and I guess it would be hard to measure, right? Are there, are there, are there military forces out there that are, that are great on logistics, but just don't seem to think it's worthwhile to carry uh, combat uh, uh, medical kits or whether uh, a, a state that doesn't have good logistics probably isn't going to have good medicine either. And I'm, and so I'm wondering then, this actually gets to a real question is, is there a, um, is our advances in military medicine, are they, uh, are they essentially subsidiary indicators, right, of an advanced organizational sort of society, um, um, or is there, or is is medicine a sort of an independent variable that the, the quality of medicine can be really high, even if you're not talking about a society that's got excellent transport, excellent logistics, excellent organization? What do you think? Um, I think that there can be real variation along these various dimensions. So mm -hmm. if you're thinking about a war between two countries, you can still have one in the same time period, mm -hmm. right? So the mm -hmm. same kind of transportation technology, for example, the same uh, medical knowledge that is better at the medicine than the other. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, to your point about logistics, I think about evacuation as part of military medicine, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, because it's crucial. I mean, we know, you know, one of the uh, really big policy changes during OEF and OIF was the decision to implement the golden hour rule, right? This, this notion that, so the, the, the idea of the golden hour, actually some people even go down to the, what's called the platinum 15 minutes. Um, but the idea is that if you are injured and you receive higher level medical care within an hour of injury, then your odds of survival go way, way up. And in 2009, uh, Gates said, well, we're going to just adopt this rule. And effectively, you stop deploying people beyond a perimeter whereby they could be evacuated. They had to be able to be evacuated within the golden hour. Um, so so that's, that's part of why I think about uh, transportation as related to, in some ways, part of almost part of the definition or evacuation practices as part of the definition of military medicine. Um, but I also, I think you can have 
you can do well on one dimension while doing poorly on another. So here I would think about, for example, the United States, the Union Army uh, in the Civil War, mm -hmm. where this is pre-germ theory of disease, the, you know, many, many, many more people are dying from disease in the Civil War as opposed to wounds. And also because of the lack of understanding of the germ theory of disease, if you get wounded, then your wound is very likely to get infected and you, there's a very good chance you'll get, you'll die. And if not, you'll probably have an amputated limb. Um, but at the same time, Jonathan Letterman, who was the medical director of the Army of the Potomac, starting in, I believe it was 1862, implements this new evacuation system that ends up being the foundation of U.S. military evacuation really going forward until today. <laughs> and that has an enormous effect on the ability of the Union Army to provide care for its soldiers. Mm -hmm. and, and when, for people who are not specialists in the field, right, when they think about the origins of uh, American military medicine, often it's the Civil War that they think of. They think of Clara Barton. Maybe they remember that Walt Whitman was a nurse uh, in the Civil mm -hmm. War. Um, but you know, I, I don't know how many of our of our listeners had heard of Letterman before, but, but maybe some of them have. If you have, please let me know in your comments on the program. But it is interesting to see that this is the beginning when because now you really do have technology in the in the form of long wagon trains of carts where you're able to get people get stuff to the front to get people back from the front. Are there any other important um, turning points in the development of, say, American military medicine that are that that helped us to get where we are today? Yeah, I mean, I, so going back to the Civil War, I would mention not just Letterman's evacuation system, but also the fact that the Civil War is a real turning point in terms of hospitals and staffing. Um, you know, before the Civil War, there isn't really a civilian and nor a military hospital system in the US. Uh, and so if you're sick, you're tended to at home by women, by the women in your family. Um, but with the start of the Civil War, women are realizing, well, we can't, we're not getting our, our wounded husbands and sons and brothers home. So they kind of shoulder themselves, they shoulder their way onto the battlefield. And to some extent, they have Florence Nightingale in Crimea as an example, but this is really the birth of the nursing profession in the United States, which of course has enormous implications society, societally for the role that women can play in society and the fact that they can now have a profession outside the home. Um, but at the same time, as I mentioned, there isn't really a, a civilian hospital system in the U.S. at this point. Hospitals are only for the indigent or the insane. But you have this enormous general hospital system that's well, comparatively enormous, historically comparatively enormous, that is developed during the Civil War that eventually gets reproduced and becomes a normal part of civilian life. I think you know some other advancements I would point to would be the development of penicillin in World War II, um, air evacuation, which we also see is you know really starting to ramp up in World War II, and then in the more recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we have major advances in evidence-based medicine that have led to really a laser focus on stemming hemorrhage or blood loss. Um, but I also think you need to put these advantages, th these advances in the U.S. in a global context, because 
In the mid-19th century, the U.S. was very much behind the times when it came to evacuation. Uh, Napoleon's medical director, Larray, had famously created these uh, flying ambulances. They didn't, they didn't actually... They didn't actually fly. They were just really fast right, for the time. Um, the, uh, the British were using whole blood in World War II before the Americans. Uh, it's only pretty recently that the U.S. has become, you know, when we think about this in sort of the long arc of history, that the U.S. has become a, a global leader in military medicine. So that leads me. I have I have two more questions, uh, hopefully, in, in in our last few minutes together. I mean, one is you've you've mentioned it twice, and now I really got to know. So, what are the relative advantages of whole blood versus plasma in uh, in dealing in military medicine? So, okay, so plasma is of course a blood component, mm-hmm. and it's a component of whole blood. What whole blood does is it allows oxygen to, it allow, you know, it carries oxygen and that's mm-hmm. what you need to really arrest shock. Uh, so for a very long time, so for example, um, at the start of World War II, the U.S. was using dried plasma and for transfusion. Uh, and you would, and, and the theory was that you're replacing fluids and mm-hmm. it did replace fluids. Uh, and you might get, see somebody who seemed like they were resuscitated on a temporary basis, but they weren't really in a position physically to endure, for example, a surgery. And when you read through the, uh, you know, I've, I've read through, this is sort of my happy place is going to archives and reading through the accounts from various doctors and nurses and their reaction to the use of whole blood is really striking. I mean, they just think it's a miracle that what you can do with whole blood is just immediately apparent to them. And so, you know, there is, I mentioned earlier that the U S actually stops using whole blood in a pre-hospital setting Certainly by the 1980s, there's this great story. Um, John Holcomb, who is um, kind of a dean of U.S. military medicine, tells a story of when he was, I can't remember what his rank was, maybe a captain or a major, uh, during uh, the intervention in Somalia. And he's, he's having to treat somebody and uh, his commanding officer the person above him medically says, okay, we're going to use whole blood. We're basically going to do a walking blood bank. And he's, he says, he's on record as saying, Holcomb, that um, I thought I was going to get arrested because this was just not done. This was not something you did. <laughs> uh, but it was, again, apparent to him, it was like a rewrite, a rerun of World War II, how effective this was. Uh, and so he's been a real uh, crusader for the, the adoption of the use of whole blood since then. And is it because using whole blood is more whole blood is more difficult to to uh, store, more difficult to transport, um, um, harder to keep harder to keep closer to the battlefield? Well, yes. I mean, it's definitely harder to store. It requires refrigeration in a way that dried plasma <laughs> doesn't. Um, it's also you have to type it. Um, so you have to, you have to make sure that, so, so this is why right now there's an emphasis on a particular type of type O blood, um, that will, that is basically universal. Uh, and also I think one of the reasons that it stopped being used as frequently was because there were concerns about it being, uh, about disease, Mm. uh, especially Mm -hmm. with walking blood banks where you couldn't really test, uh, 
test the blood, uh, not just type it, but test it to make sure that it was safe to be used. So in order to use whole blood, you, you need to you need to have this larger infrastructure of testing and maintenance and and uh, so once again, right? There's a connection between advances in military medicine and and technological and social advances. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So then, my final question for you is: um, you you hinted at the beginning, and I think we talked about this a little bit before that the advantage, of course, of improved military medicine is fewer people die. That's which is a big advantage, especially to those people who don't die. Um, but uh, it also means that societies have to deal with disability and the consequences of warfare in ways they haven't had to deal with before. And how, if at all, are uh, do you measure or do you discuss those kinds of questions? Because I think about this because there, there's so much discussion today about uh, the problems in military recruiting. And I have heard that we had a we had a civil military conference recently here at the War College, but also for some reason, once you hear something once, you hear it five times, five different places. And several people have pointed out that one of the reasons why recruiting may be declining is because of all the stories that people can see on TV about wounded warriors, and that this is essentially a uh, in an odd way, right, can be a deterrent because people are confronted with the reality that they could be disabled. Right, the issue of how can or should military medicine deal with the problem of then these long-term costs right after the warrior comes home? The same military medicine that saved these people's lives also essentially delivers them back home and says, okay, now congratulations, you get to live the rest of your life with these consequences of warfare. Yeah, I don't see that as a problem for military medicine. That's a result of the advancements in military okay. medicine. I see it more as a an issue for policymakers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the way that I look at it is that, and this is, this is, you know, the subject of the, the book I'm writing right now, which is actually called military medicine and the hidden costs of war. And, you know, the, the argument I'm making is that dramatic advancements in military medicine in the U S over time, alongside historically, especially since world war II, the expansion of the Veterans Benefits Program have increased the long-term downstream costs of war in ways that we tend not to appreciate. So, I mean, here I think to put some numbers to this, the wounded to killed ratio is a really useful statistic. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with this statistic and also familiar with the fact that historically the wounded to killed ratio was very stable at three to one. So for every person killed in battle, there were three people wounded. For the U.S. today, that number, especially in the most recent wars, is about 10 to one. So what that means is that as a percentage of those deployed, you have many more people returning home, having survived injuries that they would not have survived in the past, and also coming home to an expanded veterans benefit system. So when we think about the costs of war on the front end, we tend to think about the human cost of war almost exclusively in terms of fatalities and the financial cost of war in terms of how much does it cost to get a fighter jet in the war, in, in mm -hmm. the air, excuse mm -hmm. me. Um, but in reality, the long term costs of war are much more extensive. And you have this strange situation where a good thing, two good things, actually, advances in military medicine and the expansion of the veterans benefit system have 
produce these very long costs. So the the general argument I would make is that to the extent that we think about the decision to go to war as a cost benefit calculation, I think we're getting the costs wrong by not anticipating the fact that in every war, medicine improves, that means you're going to have more people coming home. And we should support our veterans. This is actually also a topic in the news right now, right? The, the possibility of reducing veterans benefits. For sure. Uh, but I think we have to really take these these costs into account before military action, as opposed to being surprised by them after mm-hmm. or during military action. Very true. And I guess if we if we want to understand those costs and we want to understand the requirements of uh, providing for our fighting people both during the fight and after the fight, uh, we need to understand the importance of military medicine. And so the research that you're doing is uh, is very important. Tanisha Fazal, thank you so much for joining us here on A Better Peace to talk about your work. Uh, I hope that uh, we will include some links to your work in the uh, in the show notes, but uh, we hope that uh, we wish you luck on finishing the book and on your subsequent research. Thank you so much, Ron. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your suggestions, your comments, your thoughts on this program and all the programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice because why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Piece? And after you have subscribed to A Better Piece, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast because once you have done that, that helps other people to find out about us as well. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And so even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.